This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. SROs have the power to literally give students criminal records while they're in school. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. They, they are, they, it is within their full power to arrest students. Right? Mm-hmm. That's their job right, as police officers. And so the school to prison pipeline just becomes even stronger. The correlation becomes even stronger in schools that have a police present. Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We We fly fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. interchangeable. White Ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Today's essential question is to what extent do schools actually need SROs? And our guest today is Megan Holyoke, a Lincoln High School teacher and talker extraordinaire. Who was that? That in there. Megan put that in there? No, I did, but you should have edited that out. (laughs) I was like, I saw it and I'm like, I mean, I'll take it. I figured we'd just edit that, but it's all right. It's all good. Listen, she's awesome. So, um, I yeah, I mean, but like professional, like 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 fix all the systemic problems, talker, not like a like gossiper. Does that make sense? Like just to be clear, um, so she was a previous guest on uh, Interchangeable White Ladies episode thirty nine, striking while female. Uh, we wanted to set up this episode with a little bit of context with all the talk of defunding or abolishing the police. We thought we should focus on an episode rather uh, about SROs rather than just our initial thoughts on, um, on, on the police as we discussed in episode 73, which was the police and passive white people are the problem. Um, so we're narrowing our focus today to spend some time discussing specifically uh, a law enforcement officer that we interact with pretty regularly, which would be school resource officers. Those are police officers who work for police departments, but work in schools. So I wanted to start this. Megan, welcome to the show again. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Um, I wanted to start simply by asking y'all where you are currently at in your own journey, um, understanding this whole hashtag defund the police, or as we've been seeing a lot of abolishing the police also kind of gets wrapped up in there. I mean, before we jump into SRO specifically, where are you two at when it comes to this? And what do you think's informed um, your thinking about it the last few weeks? Um, that's a really good question. I, th- I think that I have so background before I became a teacher. Um, I just finished up my second year of teaching, which is a wild, wild second year of teaching. Um, but before that, I've worked- been teaching for two years. It's not wild, wild. And then my first year was the strike, which was the last time I was on the podcast. Um, you seem like a you seem like a vet. You've got like the hardened look in your eyes. I know, got, right? Like, the distant stare, <laughs> the weathered, the weathered the, skin, the, the like scary effect. Yes, yeah. Uh, the like coffee wrinkles from just injecting right? caffeine throughout yes. the day. Oh my gosh! Um, which thank you. I take that all as a compliment. <laughs> but it might be because before that, for ten years, I worked in the nonprofit world, and um, this is a second career for me, and. I, I think that I have always been in the space of higher funding for social services. Um, when you work in the nonprofit world, that's kind of your MO. Like you are trying to advocate on behalf of more social services, which will ultimately end cycles of poverty. And that's essentially what defund the police is, right? Defund the police is not saying, at least the defund police is not saying to get completely get rid of police. It is saying, let's think more logically about the approach of this, right? Let's think more logically about how we provide social services to our community. Let's take the burden off of police of having to deal with mental health and not having to be social workers and not having to be all of these other things that there are actually organizations in our community that do this much better than the police do um, because it's their job and because they're trained to do it. And so it's, I am in support of it in the sense that it is, let's reallocate these funds to organizations that are doing this work better because it's their job and they're trained to, um, and which ultimately will make a society and a community that needs, um, needs the police and the actual work of policing less. So mm-hmm. if we try and solve these problems that create cycles of 
crime or create cycles of the necessity for policing, then ultimately we will need less police, which just makes sense and ultimately feels like that should be the goal of everybody is to create safer, more supported communities. Um, and so I think that the defund the police conversation has just put some words, has put a slogan behind thoughts and um, action that I have been sitting in and like a space I've been sitting in for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Annie, how about you? What are you thinking? I just, I, I feel like the, I'm still struck by the statistic. And I think I talked about this in our last episode that we talked about the police, but that 90% of calls to 911 um, are not, um, are not like active crimes that where someone is in immediate danger. So percent of calls to 911 are like medical emergencies, um, are noise complaints, are, um, you know, people disturbing the peace or whatever um, that don't require necessarily a police officer to intervene. In some cases they do, but, um, but require, what does require mean, right? Like what is required of us and when we right. respond to other human beings in like either a crisis situation or like a, a situation where the peace is being disturbed, whatever that means. Um, what, you know, so th- for me, that that says a lot about where money should probably go, that money should go 90% of the time to non-police options, right? Mm-hmm. Like, period. Mm-hmm. And then beyond, beyond that, there's this kind of idea of, you know, differentiating between defunding the police and like abolishing the police, right? Right. If abolishing the police means that we replace the role of police with other, um, with other folks, right? Like, um, you know, being mindful of what that looks looks like, right? Uh, there was a I I like TikTok, as you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I think anyone who's listened to the show more than one episode no, you know, knows that. No, you know, because uh, I feel like it's every episode. You're like, just yeah, to be no, clear. I, hey, you guys, I like yeah. TikTok. Um, there yeah, was I saw a TikTok of a social worker, and she was like, I think she's Pakistani American, and she was talking about you don't understand that actually social work is really white, and there's a lot of white savior complex yeah. in work. So it doesn't mean that everybody everybody in social work is a white savior. Obviously not. She's like, I, you know, I'm not in that boat, right? But um, the fact that, like, if we're looking at systems, right, like, yeah. think about, <clears throat> you know, what are the systemic issues, not just in policing, but also in, like, just how we, how people are, um, I don't know the, even the right word for it because like if you know a role of society of government or a role of society is to like manage people and their behavior and the expectations of them right like what does that look like in a where we you know people are trusted to make decisions but are supported to get out of poverty because a lot of crimes that people die from are crimes of poverty right at the hands of mm. um i don't know like there's, we got to attack it at kind of a systems level in every system. It, yeah. It's yeah. a tough one to solve. I don't, I'm just not, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place with it. Is mm-hmm. not tell I'm all over the place with it because I'm just like, yeah, like defund the police for these reasons. Right. And then it's like, but abolish the police for these reasons. And then, but replace it with systems that are also racist in different ways. Right. Like, like, I don't know, like, how do you, yeah. you uh, yeah. reconcile that? So that's how yeah, I, yeah, part of, Part of me is like replace it. I, I've been thinking a lot of years saying here, like that um, that replacement with another racist, horrible infrastructure, right or system. Um, and I guess my only answer, as I think about that to myself, is at least they don't have guns. So I'm mm-hmm. like, is it better? Like, am I swapping yeah. out racist white socialists well, and or then, so- socialists? Socialists are fine actually, <laughs> but social workers is well. And then like, and like, like to be totally clear, social workers are held to there's like these this ethical standards for social workers right they don't have weapons they like there's a um i don't know if i don't know if there's more of a call out culture in social work for people being racist like i would assume that there might be i don't know because like when you're talking about call out culture with police like that's like you you could get doxxed like i don't know like is social work call out culture different like could you call someone out and be like hey that was racist like change and social workers who are empathetic and like not carrying a sidearm are like oh you know i could change <laughs> I don't know. Like, is it different like is the group of folks different you're talking to to yeah them to make growth i don't it, i would think that it would be but also i'm not a social worker and i'm yeah. not in, yeah so i don't know I, 
I think that we have to also understand that when we say social worker, that is a really, really broad umbrella. Yeah, yeah. There is no social worker force that like goes out <laughs> yeah. into the community, right? Like police yeah. force. It's no. that there are social workers that work for many different organizations, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are different organizations that do the work far better than others. There are organizations yep. in our community that are not doing really great work and, and don't have the right motivations and don't have the systems of accountability built into it, right? Mm-hmm. But there are organizations in our communities that do, and they they do have converse, hard conversations about race and equity. And I think that when you think about the types of people that are most likely to become social workers, mm-hmm. and, and granted, I worked with many people that were social workers and they weren't all wonderful and great and ooey gooey people, but at least the organization was willing to talk about race and Mm -hmm. the organization was more empathetic and more like (laughs) connected to and attached to feelings. Right. And like, um, I hate to say empathetic because once again, I think about moving into a space of like thinking about gender and like how Do more I, I women was, are more likely to become social workers and how far yeah. more men are likely to become police officers, right? Yeah. And, and so I hate should, to put... Like, should we avoid that? Like, should we avoid that? I was but just like, about to bring that up. And so it's like, I think that like we are as like powerful, strong women, we've been trained to not use like words like empathetic when trying to describe something because we want it to be taken seriously. And the moment we bring up feelings, all of a sudden that profession is like, oh, like it's not as important and it's not as, you know, as powerful in creating systemic change when in fact I think that we really have to lean into those things in order to make the changes that we're we're running Mm. to be, right? Like we have to lean into um, how these systems that have been created to oppress marginalized communities, how they make those communities feel and why do they make those communities feel that way? Because oftentimes the thing is invisible and the only indicator that we can go off of is the fact that it is oppressing this communities and they feel oppressed. Mm -hmm. And, and so I feel like we have to lean into that which I think that social workers and, and not just social workers, like, cause I wasn't a social worker. Right. But I worked in nonprofit work and I worked in um, systems and it, it's, they are far more likely to have those conversations. Right. And if you fund them more, all of a sudden they are able to hire more people and pay their employees more. So the retention rate, because let's also be real in order to change systems, you have to yeah. have people that are going to stay and do the work. And if you don't pay them enough, they're not going to stay because they can't afford right, to yeah. stay. I, sorry, I just went on a, I feel like I just blacked no, out. You're right. I, no, you're right. You're totally right. Like, because you think about like, okay, um, the kind of the exposure that's happened with like um, police department salaries mm-hmm. in the last couple of months and how there are police officers in Seattle's police department last year working overtime who made who made upwards of $300,000 a year. Yes. Yeah. I've never met a social worker who, who (laughs) like really is living comfortably. Never. Yeah. I, a lot of friends who are social workers who have, who continue to struggle, even though they have full-time jobs because it does not pay. And there's a high turnover because the work does not pay. And it's not, it's not because they don't care. They don't leave the work. They don't care. They leave the work because they can't eat. Yeah. I, I so think it's similar like, to teaching, right? We yeah. talk about the the extra burden, the the physical work, the demand, the mental, mm-hmm. the emotional, mm-hmm. and then the monetary as well. The like the Go price ahead. of the emotional. Um, yeah. I mean, for context, I had to remove myself from that work because of lack of pay and my like in self care, and I went into teaching. So mm-hmm. when people are like, I the first time that I got my teaching paycheck, which. I still like, I advocate strongly for higher teacher pay and better teacher benefits because it's not enough and the work is so challenging. But man, if we want to talk about of nonprofit pay, I mean, I was the right, program yeah. director of an entire club that had 200 kids, full staff. I was like the manager of his full staff and I was making $30,000 a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was... Shame bell. Like, right. So, um, and that's not, but that is just to give some context of how we value the work that is being done. Right. How do, how do we value the work of people that are trying to change things on a systems level and how, and, and trying to really, um, shift communities versus 
the how we value the work of people that are policing our communities. And mm-hmm. and and it's just it's a really fascinating thing. And it's no wonder um it's no wonder that s- systems aren't changing is because we're not valuing changing them. We're not mm-hmm. valuing changing our communities. Police mm-hmm. aren't there to change our communities. They're there to police our communities, right? And so yep. how are we valuing the work of what is being done? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that point. I think one of the things for listeners um, in thinking about the framing of today is one of the things we all talked about beforehand is just being really clear that our conversation isn't about one cop mm-hmm. or one SRO. We're talking about it as a system, as a movement. Um, I think in some in similar regards, I think about it with teaching, right? I understand that when I, we talk about teachers and the problems within teaching and racist teachers and the racist system in education, we're talking, it's not about me personally, and I'm not going to get offended by it personally. It's about the entire infrastructure. And so I think for listeners understanding that, right, we have all worked at schools with fantastic SROs, mm-hmm. cool, great. They're nice. They're kind. They care about kids. They haven't done anything crazy. That's fine. Right. But it's not about them and that particular one person. Um, I don't know if either of you want to chime in on that as well, just as our kind of disclaimer oh, just, or context. Just the, the SROs that I have interacted with have been really nice people and I've never seen them hurt kids. Like, yeah. like I just to be perfectly transparent, like I've, I've seen actually really positive interactions between our school SROs and students um, who, who are struggling. Like that's, I've seen some really positive relationships come out of that. Um, but it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that that I don't know that it's not that, like you said, not that one person who is, mm-hmm. who is either a problem or yeah. who, is, who is good at, who's good at it. Right. Like, yeah, that's not the point. It's the and I, system. And I think that something that I have been really um, reflecting on and not just in the conversations about like the defund the police or SROs, but in all aspects of um, <clears throat> the black lives matter movement is that, if you are responding to calls to change a system, or if you are responding to criticisms of a system with anecdotal stories about individuals, then you're missing the point, right? Mm -hmm. Let's have a conversation then. If you want to defend the system, then let's defend the system, right? If you believe in the system, let's have a conversation about why you believe in the system of having SROs in schools. Mm -hmm. Please don't come at me with an anecdotal story of one situation that you have or experience that you have, because that's not the conversation that we're having, right? We're Mm -hmm. having a conversation about the system. So Mm -hmm. um, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about as well is, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So why don't um, let's talk a little bit about what is an SRO and what the heck is the difference between a campus security and an SRO? Because I'm hearing a lot of people and seeing people post on social media, like really not understanding that there are differences. And I think part of that's changed because of the history of when security officers came into schools and how that is. And we use the word security, right? Gets kind of used for both. Um, So let's unpack that a little bit. What's the difference? What do they do that's different? Well, so from um, some of the research that we did, um, school resource officers are not security guards. They're trained police officers, many of whom carry a firearm, they have the ability to make arrests and to use force when warranted. So they act as police officers, not as security guards. And in our in our building, we have security and an SRO. So we have one SRO and a security team, mm-hmm. two folks on it. But um, yeah, they're different, right? Yeah. Megan, did you want to say in your mind? Yeah. I think, <laughs> so I was like looking at... Um, some like statistics and yeah, it's that SROs are, it's usually a contract with the local police department and there are police officers that are, their contract is to be in schools, but they are acting as a contract between a school district and police. So they're not a security officer. I'm looking, um, and between like 85 to 95% of all SROs in schools carry firearms. So it is a huge majority of mm-hmm. police officers that are carrying firearms. Oftentimes, like oftentimes they're in full uniform. They have bulletproof, their bulletproof vest on, um, which is a very different um, presence than a security officer. So why is that a problem? I mean, they're just there to stop criminals, right? And like, it's really good that they're armed because like, if the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good sure. guy with a gun. Well, I so, think, I mean, what's so wrong with that? I think it's important to, all, like some history is really important too, because of where SROs, like their original intention, <clears throat> because SROs were not originally intended to be like fully militarized police in schools. They were meant to be, they were meant to be like a bridge between like children in the community and the police to like trust the police 
right, to be more like a mentor roles, teachers, counselors type of role in the schools, right? Um, but we fully militarized our police in this country. And so when that happened, there's this shift to like seeing police in schools as, as a part of that system, right, of like a punitive action against kids, right? And so it's not even necessarily just that like there's clear evidence that the police have been militarized, but also like that there's clear evidence that police in schools don't necessarily make schools safer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like... Um, essentially, there has been an increase in funding for SROs since I think it was Columbine was the big event for um, that made it made schools realize like, hey, maybe we need to have better security in our buildings. Let's have SROs. But we know, and this is a story that that always gets trotted out by folk. And I'm just like saying trotted out because it's like the example that people point to, right? Um, the shooting at the um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, mm-hmm. their SRO, when they found out there was an active shooter situation, fled the scene, right? And so, like, do SROs prevent crime? I don't know. Like, I don't know. <laughs> that's a good, and, I don't know. Do they and, do? Like, I think that that's what was fascinating for me in my research surrounding this was that I found that this, the same exact patterns that we find when communities are over-policed, and we know that communities of color are disproportionately policed than white communities, right? Yeah. And it's that crime rates increase when you add police to a situation. So the more you police a community, the more crime you can report. And so... And that's just because like, if you put police in a situation, they're going to be looking for crime and they're going to be prosecuting crime. And so when you're putting SROs in schools, all of a sudden, actually, um, you find that there is an increase in incidences in schools with SROs, which then perpetuates the cycle that, oh, that school needs SROs because look at all these crimes that are happening or look at all these instances where the SRO had to step in. But all of those instances would have been happening and taken care of by school discipline prior to that. So let's talk about that. What are some of the factors that then lead um, that create, uh, I guess, I guess that lead to more criminalization of those students? What do you all think that is? Wait, ask that again. Sorry. So I'm just thinking you're saying that the increase happens, right? So why is the increase there? Because I think many people would like to say, well, no, if there's more police, then it should be safer. It should be feel safer and it should be actually safer. So why is it actually worse? Yeah, I think just like exactly what Megan said about criminal criminalizing school discipline. So like saying that like school discipline is um, that the things that students would normally do in like normal teenage behavior on a normal Mm -hmm. day in school would be considered criminal or could be criminalized um, because of the, the response is not coming from school staff. The response is coming from the police. And so their behavior is escalated from um, maybe even like defiant behavior, like typical defiant behavior that you see in any school day to mm-hmm. being crime. Right. And like what you were saying, like she was saying, like, I totally agree. Like you think about the, I don't need to agree. It's a fact. Um, excuse me. Um, fact <laughs> that the <laughs> communities of color are over-policed, like the, um, that when you have, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Like that, I mean, it's just, you, when you're looking for crime, you're going to find it, right? Like, I mean, I can look in my neighborhood, my leafy suburban neighborhood, and I can like find crime, right? If I'm looking for it, like I can find crime. I can find people jaywalking. I can find litter. I can find burnt out taillights. You know, I can find, I can find crime. No problem. My neighbors are kind of loud crime, right? Like you can, Yeah, and I think that what um, I hope people understand is that a really big, like, buzzword in education is, um, oh, that school-to-prison pipeline, right? Like, we want to end that school-to-prison pipeline. By having SROs in schools, all of a sudden, we are creating, we are strengthening the school-to-prison pipeline in a very real way. So when we're looking Mm -hmm. at data of students that are, far more likely to be disciplined in school. Or if a student, like you can look at absent rates and you can look at um, detention rates and suspension rates and pretty accurately accurately look at students who then graduate and go on to become a part of the prison system, right? Um, 
<clears throat> with SROs being in the schools, it's even stronger. The correlation is mm-hmm. even stronger because SROs have the power to literally give students criminal records while they're in school, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They, they are, they, it is within their full power to arrest students, right? That's mm-hmm. their job, right? As police officers. And so the school to prison pipeline just becomes even stronger. The correlation becomes even stronger in schools that have a police presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and once somebody is a part of that system and once somebody is in that cycle, it is far more likely that they are going to continue to um, have, I don't know how to phrase it, like how to reoffend, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, go, keep go going. Ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just thinking it also makes me I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also talk about like part of the conversation I think that is happening is in schools is that we're starting people are starting to realize more like in the structural racism that happens mm-hmm. in the American education system. Right. And so if you're also I think about some of the you know increase. Right. If I'm a if we think about the profession is dominated by white women and we understand that white women oftentimes don't understand their own cultural biases. And then the, here they are. And we we know research shows that students of color, particularly black kids, um, often are targeted by discipline. The same behavior that a white kid does is not the same behavior when a black kid does it right the um what's it called adultification of our black children right some of those kind of factors that are there and i think about so if a kid is act quote unquote doing some kind of behavior i was gonna say acting up but honestly right like even that language right is ridiculous um and then that white teacher instead of learning how to mitigate that behavior or like help a kid get to a certain point whatever you think is appropriate in that moment right um then you escalate it right and so in terms of thinking about the levels of escalation right i think a lot of times teachers will cop out ha cop out get it um no jokes um (laughs) well well um just kind of like get rid of their you know their own responsibility right and whether they pass it first off to the principal and then i think in some communities right the principal passes it off or if the kid or the teacher escalates it right in the same way i see this parallel you know when, when when cops are saying like we didn't feel safe my life was threatened and that's why i had to shoot like i see every time i hear that i think about the teachers who are like well that was i felt unsafe when this kid was in my class and that's that's a real feeling you might feel that way but because of systemic okay. racism and a lack of awareness of our own biases um i think people jump to that and white people let's be specific jump to that a little bit too early right and so then to me that's that increase or that connection back to the sros um and like you said criminalizing things that aren't criminal behavior right normal things that teenagers do um i don't know i was thinking a lot about that as you you both were talking yeah yeah so <laughs> let's i guess so uh sorry i'm gonna drop the mic there no it wasn't even that good no, they did. Um, yes, yes, you dropped all the knowledge <laughs> I own it own it so thinking about security i know we both we all of us have been reading about you know does so okay so on the one hand criminalization of students right increase the you know emphasizing that school to prison pipeline on the other hand you know what about schools that quote unquote are actually unsafe is there any evidence of like a positive impact in that sense or that this actually works a lot of stuff i'm reading is talks about the fact that it's a false sense of security Mm -hmm. that it's actually not there's not enough causal data that actually shows that this works in the case Mm -hmm. of real crime so what i've seen similar statistics and the the thing that i've seen that actually is the most positive impact on student discipline and in schools that feel unsafe is um is like a restorative justice model where students are um Mm -hmm kind of going through more like counseling and in some cases group counseling in some cases individual counseling um but kind of restorative practices for and not just stuff that's called restorative justice so that people <laughs> oh let's just call it that and that's what it is like actual restorative justice practices that like work hand in hand with like juvenile justice and like like are are actually like um you know attempting to reduce recidivism rather than just slapping a fancy label on it being like yeah cool it's it's justice it's restorative kind of we had we had a meeting and we restored our relationship rather yeah, than actually no no no, no no nothing like that like an actual yeah it's built a system that's built for you know helping students repair relationships with people that um they have you know maybe poor relationships with in the past and that's not the burden is not entirely on the student it's on everyone who's involved in that relationship right so including teachers um and including administrators but at any any rate the um yeah like it seems like all the data points to that whereas like actual the presence of um sros doesn't actually reduce crime in schools or doesn't actually make schools so um yeah it doesn't help (laughs) 
Yeah, I know. And like, what's crazy is like, I I looked, I searched and searched and tried to find data that was unequivocally showing that having SROs in schools reduced crime in schools, made schools safer. And I think what's hard is that um, I couldn't find much. Like, I couldn't really find anything that showed that having SROs in schools um, created a safer environment. Right. And I think that anecdotally there are there is evidence. Right. So like people um, can say like, well, yes, in this instance, but there's no data that really supports that. Um, and I just keep coming back to like there is data that shows that SROs disproportionately target yeah. impact students of color. And so if we can't prove that SROs make schools safer, but we can prove that SROs make schools less safe for students of color, then what are we doing and what are we valuing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think the one of the most shocking statistics that I came across in my research was that Latino students are six times more likely to be referred to authorities in schools with SROs than without, six times more likely. And to me, like a phrase that I hadn't heard before this research, which I feel awful that I hadn't, was that the school to deportation pipeline yeah, oh for God, our students, yeah. right? And the the real feel, fear of our students who, um, who either they are undocumented or they have family members that are undocumented that have to choose between going to school, in their minds, going to school or keeping their families safe. Because right. a school, if you're walking into a school with an SRO, every single day you are fearful that you are putting your family in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I think it's really interesting that we're valuing this like pie in the sky idea that SROs make schools safer when we know that SROs in schools don't make schools safer for a large majority of our student body. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's a conversation that I would love to hear more people talk about. Yeah, that's actually maybe a great spot to take a a quick break and then we will pick right back up. giant global companies are basically lawless now and are trying to overpower our democracy to protect their profit margins? Yes. And how it's basically impossible to opt out of the late capitalist system we've created? Sis, you don't have to tell me. Well, listen, I found a first step. TAPCO Credit Union, Pierce County's original credit union. Really? Tell me more. Well, credit union means they're not-for-profit financial cooperative, and they exist to enrich their members, not some big bank shareholders somewhere out of state. And they are Pierce County's credit union, dedicated to serving the local community, just like Channel 253. Ooh, that's pretty interesting. Well, what about their services? I mean, I can't live without mobile banking, am I right? Right, right. So now you don't have to choose between important services and your ethics, because TAPCO offers mobile banking, access to a nationwide ATM network, plus lower fees and better rates than a lot of the big guys. Ooh, I gotta say, I'm pretty impressed with that. TAPCO's a local choice. To learn more about keeping your money local, visit tapcocu.org. Thank you, TAPCO, for your support of this podcast and Channel 253. All right. And we're back. Um, Let's keep going with this. So when you think about the impact in schools, we've talked a bit about the school to prison pipeline. We've talked about um, Megan, you just called it the school to deportation pipeline, deportation pipeline. Um, Yeah. And even that language, I haven't uh, read enough about that, I think. But right. Anecdotally, right. Or hearing stories, thinking about the the schools that I've worked in. Um, What are some of the other things that y'all are thinking about in terms of the impact that maybe is less discussed? I think that one thing that actually came up for me that was not about SROs, but was about generally about policing was that um, upwards of 50% of people who are um, killed by the police um, are, have documented disabilities. Hmm. And so I think it's really important to point out the fact that like, like that's disproportionate to like um, the general population. Um, We're talking about folks with things like autism um, or schizophrenia being, um, dying at a higher rate than people who are neurotypical. And so Hmm. I think um, thinking about what that looks like in schools, um, there there was a book from the We Came to Learn School Policy, deny students of color opportunity to learn, um, said students with disabilities represent only 12% of student enrollment, but 28% of students referred to law enforcement. So I think it's really just um, important to recognize that it's not, that there are these kind of like 
there's intersections right between disability and race and a lot yeah. of those intersections is encounters with the police so you know I don't um I I know that with my students who I actually it would I would say that I've seen more like in person like seen with my own eyes and I know anecdotal like we talked about anecdotal evidence can be like both like really helpful and really not helpful um <laughs> but that the majority of interactions I've seen with between students and SROs in the context that I've been in have been with students who are having like mental health crisis. Um, and mm. in some cases happened to be students of color, but in a lot of cases were struggling to, um, struggling to understand what was happening either, you know, in the situation they had been like removed from or were not understanding why they were being perceived as like angry or upset when they were um, like throwing things. Right. Um, <clears throat> that that was, that was as much about their, um, you know, um, kind of mishandling of or miscommunication about their uh, their needs in that moment with their like mental health or their disability than it was about their race um, or if it mm. was, or if it was both, right? Um, you know that that they had an interaction with law enforcement because of that intersectionality, right? That they were um, disabled disabled while black, right? And that that is that is can be really dangerous in our society. Yeah. Example would be the young man who was um, who was killed by police in uh, Colorado. Um, just has been in the news recently. Um, who the that he was um, that we had just started talking about this because the case is going to be reopened. But he was killed last August, and there was not really a lot of talk about it. Seems Elijah. Um, the fact that he um, had autism. Yeah. And that he was that at no point. Did police officers while while he was being murdered when he was saying things that were kind of kind of unusual, right? Like um, that he said to the officers who were holding him down, "Hey, you guys work well together. You're really strong. Teamwork makes a dream work." That nobody's thought to stop and be like, "Yeah, maybe he is. Maybe he's what he's talking about is like maybe he's not neurotypical. Maybe we should yeah. take him in, right?" So yeah, I think that's important. I, I, I think well. that. Um, there, there is like an, this amazing report that came out from the, we came to learn. Um, and I, I just think about the need for more mental health professionals. Yeah. It was that there was a statistic that 1.9 million students in the United States go to a school with an SRO, um, but not with a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that once again, is like, what are we valuing as a society? What are we willing to put money into as a society? And I, I think about that all the time of, um, you know, who is, who is most likely to be um, misunderstood and targeted, right, as aggressive behavior. And we've talked a lot about like teenagers have, <laughs> we all have worked with teenagers like they're children, but they're like their brains are developing and they don't understand their emotions or feelings. And so then when they're put into a situation where they're being handled, like how an adult sh is expected to be handled, like they're literally, mm -hmm. their brains are not capable of doing that. Like mm -hmm. literally scientifically, like biochemically, their brains aren't capable of that yet. Mm -hmm. And so they're being put into these high intensity situations and and they're just not capable of it. And then like Annie said, like adding in this, the intersection of um, disability, all of a sudden it's like, it becomes a really dangerous situation and emotions are heightened and things are escalating. And it just, I, that is, I think the most common time that things get out of control with an SRO. And so students that are disabled are being targeted in a more dangerous way mm -hmm. where a mental well, health professional well, there's a whole range of disabilities that put someone at risk, right? Like you think about somebody who's deaf. Yep. Well, deaf people of color are one of the highest risk groups from being murdered by the police because yeah. they don't listen. <laughs> yeah, like, I can't even. I can't. Right? Even. It's like it's like, horrific. They're not because they they refuse to listen to officers' directions and are not compliant because they're deaf. Yeah. Yep. Shame. There's another shame bell right there. What? Like, shame, that's, yes. that's nuts. That's nuts. That's it, literally nuts. And I think, 
Go ahead. Go ahead, girl. I have nothing better to add to that than what Annie just said. Like I was, I realized I was just like going to be like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) For the people in the back. (laughs) I'm going to steal. I've been promoting the podcast, higher learning with Van Lathan and Lindsay, Rachel, uh, or Rachel Lindsay. I just got her name backwards. And he always shouts at her. Talk your (laughs) <laughs> and it's like one of my favorite lines because she just like goes and he just starts shouting that at her. Um, and that's how I feel in this moment. So good job. Awesome. Um, well, I don't think this would be uh, interchangeable white ladies podcast if we didn't do like a classic white person thing, which is like, well, you guys, what about, what about and like about? some what about isms? OK, you guys, like we got to be, you know, all, like hey, really. all, all counter arguments matter. Yeah. Oh, God. shame on you for that one. So, like, um, but what about the fact that, um, in like in schools, we need to because you know because racism is so bad, and because um, when kids become adults, they'll have a bad encounter um, with a police officer. Shouldn't they have a good one when they're younger? I can't even say it with a serious voice. Um, shouldn't they have a good one when it's earlier and like start a good relationship? And if what if that's the only good encounter that they have in high, is when they're in school? What do you guys think about that? So I think that um, all I've heard all of us reference um, one of our colleagues, Kat Peterson, who responded to somebody saying that too. It's not the school's job to solve that problem. Mm. Why is that the school system's job to solve the problem that the police have created with damaging the relationship between themselves and communities of color? Like that's not, that's not our business. Like that's mm-hmm. your business. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the the first response. And then I read this quote from that the advancement project project of like that we came to learn. And it says, safety does not exist when black and brown young people are forced to interact with a system of policing that views mm-hmm. them as a threat and not as students. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is such a perfect encapsulation encapsulation that has. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, of how I feel about it, right? Is that police are there to police a community and you can put as pretty of a bow on it as you want, but the intention of police is to police a community and to control a community. And at the end of the day, and something that we haven't, I don't think have stressed enough in this conversation is that these are children. Uh Like we are talking about children. And as much as yeah, it doesn't matter if you're five years old or 16, you're still a kid. Like I teach children. I am a high school teacher. I taught seniors like all year this year. I teach children and I get very offended at the idea of treating my students that are children like adults and policing them. Yeah. Is the solution to the problem that I get offended at that because Mm -hmm. I think that what Hope touched on earlier in this episode is that our implicit bias, we already do that to students of color. We already think of them as older. And I forget what word you used. Adultification. Adultification. Exactly. We already do that to our students of color and really predominantly to black male students. Right. And so to bring in a system that already does that to them outside of our school walls and bring that system and invite that system and endorse that system in their schools where they are Mm -hmm. trying to get educated feels so counterintuitive to me that like my mama bear, like teacher protective mode comes in where it's like, that is harmful to my students. Mm -hmm. That hurts Mm -hmm. them to invite and endorse a system that systematically oppresses them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't keep get, I can't get over the fact that like the SRO, there's no classes where like the SRO is in and is like trying to build relationship. It's not like if, it, if an SRO ever goes into a class, like I know at Lincoln, there's been some cases where you guys in social studies have had them come in and share like, you know, uh, their point of view or whatever and have the kids have like a dialogue. But that's the exception. Right. That's not the norm. And back to what Andy was saying at the very beginning, the militarization of the police has basically removed any hope of that. And I feel like instead of forcing it into, into schools, like the police department needs to handle their business 
outside, right? Like go play more basketball or something like work at the community center. Like, I don't know, do some others, do something else. Like in schools, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You're just there. Like you said, policing kids, criminalizing behaviors that are actually quite normal um, or, you know, uh, accelerating problems that aren't really there. Um, and, and none of that is relationship building. Yeah. And no. what's ironic is that when this program started in the 1950s and the first um, program was in Flint, Michigan, it literally was to have unarmed, yeah, Flint, Michigan, to have mm. unarmed oh. officers to be teachers and counselors. It right. was literally to have police become teachers and counselors to build relationships. It was not that armed officers in uniform were in schools when the yeah. program started. That didn't happen until the 1970s, right? And we need to think about what was happening in our world right. in the 1970s. Yeah. And we need to think about what was happening in terms of race relations in the 1970s. Yeah. And so what are the implications of that? And so it we can say all we want that this program was be built to foster relationships with officers, but like, let's talk about the reality of the situation of, well, then is that actually happening? Because there are no SROs that I know, like you were saying, that are in classrooms, teaching classes, nor are counselors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I also, I, I think just to remember what systems are, are built on, like what are the foundations of systems, right? So we in education, we have this kind of like smudge on education, which is the kind of idea of education started as, and in some cases, like, you know, there were folks who are like, education is a human right. Cool. But realistically, like education, our system of education is built on preparing workers for capitalism, thing one, right? Um, period. Um, the police, policing was built on private contracted slave patrols right that's the origin of policing right and so we look you look at how far away has education diverged from that original sin hmm. right in some cases pretty far right like way more literacy and literacy is like an you know is very positive right and not just in the sense of like oh it makes you a good worker like being literate makes it so that you can communicate differently with people right or and i wouldn't necessarily say better because that's not necessarily true but like we've increased literacy that's been a kind of a side effect of education that's been really positive for society um you know we've had this like the positive impacts of you know education becoming a force for um for good um you know in people bettering themselves right but we still prepare people for the workforce and whether or not you agree, you know, depends on where you are on the political spectrum, so, social comments, like how far, you know, how far left you are. Um, is that a positive, good thing? I don't, I don't know. Right. But if you look at the system of policing has not strayed far from its original sin, which was that policing was started as private yeah. for yeah. people to recover their fugitive slaves, right. Or to police the behavior of former slaves or to keep former slaves or even current slaves in line, right. Mm -hmm. in society. Um, that, that, that's really important to remember too. So we think about like, if these systems are continuing to interact with each other and how, you know, what their real purpose and where, where their real heart, the heart of the, the heart of it is right if the heart of it is still in controlling people right and specifically people of color specifically black people in america yeah yeah it's that if that was its original intent and that's still kind of its purpose right like what what why are we allowing that to continue to happen mm -hmm. why like why do we allow that to continue to happen because realistically like you can see if you lay it all out you can see it right like you can see that that's these systems interact over time right and i think that's the, the piece of it too the longitudinal thinking about it like over time how have these systems changed or adapted to each other or how have they interacted with each other right and we're at a pre kind of present moment where having sros in schools is like really toxic it's like a toxic mm -hmm. relationship mm -hmm. the toxic relationship that needs to like not that needs to end right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm just like you know blowing smoke at this point but like that's my I don't know. No, I mean, it's because racism, right? I mean, that's, I'm so tired yeah. of that being the answer, but like, that's what the answer is for every, <laughs> like every question because racism. And yeah. I think to be fair, we, I know we've talked in private conversations, just like schooling I mean, is, 
like a prison for so many kids, right? And the infrastructures that are in place and the way that, you know, systems are set up, right? There's a lot of fair critique around whether we're talking about bell systems or the way that we expect kids to behave in a classroom. I mean, there's always that tension of like, it, what is this really preparing them for the real world, whether that's capitalism and becoming workers like intended, or is it preparing them for prison? And then it's like, well, who are, who are the kids? What kinds of schools are we seeing more of those kind of policing behaviors from teachers? I mean, it's all yeah. interconnected. As you were talking, I, could, I just couldn't help but think about that. Yeah. Uh, Megan, were you going to throw something else out there? I, I think that, I mean, you both just said it so beautifully, right? Is that, I mean, like I just, Annie, the way that you connected, like saying how far have we strayed from the original sin, right? And um, and I just, I, I think about, you know, I've heard from, people that are in schools that struggle with this conversation, right? And acknowledging that, acknowledging that there are people in schools that struggle with the idea of not having SROs in schools. And um, like we said at the top, this isn't to devalue the support that SROs have provided on an individual basis, but looking at the bigger picture of things and looking at the broader picture of things. And what I have heard is that, oh, when 911 is called from a school, the response time is not fast enough. And so that's why we need to have SROs in schools. And my mm -hmm. question then is like, well, then why aren't we dismantling the system of 911? Why aren't we interrogating why, yeah, right. <laughs> why, why is a call from a school not being prioritized higher? Um, when the funding for police is so astronomically high, why are we so like slow on response times? Anyways, um, yeah. I just think that we can always find reasons to support systems that are oppressive. Yes, we yeah. can always find excuses to support um, support those mm -hmm. systems because ultimately those systems have existed because part of it works for a specific group of people. Yep, exactly. And and so when we get to a, a space and a place where we come to having to change those systems and we are beginning to push against those systems, you are going to feel uncomfortable as a white person because let's be real, all of these systems that we have been talking about were created and built to protect white people. Yeah, white they people, were, white property. They were built, yes, they were built and created by white people to protect white people. Mm -hmm. And... And so as a white person, I know that when we begin to talk about and have conversations about changing these systems, there are going to be moments where I feel uncomfortable because it's mm -hmm. pushing what it is pushing the world that I have existed in. Yep. Yep. That has protected me. And when I feel uncomfortable, I take that as a cue for myself to go inward and ask mm -hmm. myself, what story have I been telling myself about the world that we live in that is based in racism or based in bigotry? Right. And then I, I look at that as a time for my own self-work. Yeah. And I think that if you are feeling uncomfortable with the idea of pushing back against the system of policing or pushing back against the system of SROs in schools or pushing back against the educational system, because let's be real, we're not just talking about policing as a system we can call out our own system of education as being yeah. oppressive, right? It's that what story have you been told as a white person about your worth in this world? And yeah. what, how have you been taught that the system is built for you? And that maybe the idea of the system changing, if that feels like a threat, it's because that system is racist. Hmm. And and so that's what I just, I keep coming back to is like, let's really push back against the people that are pushing back against talking about this of <laughs> why do you feel uncomfortable? Why do you feel mm -hmm. so uncomfortable as a teacher about not having an SRO in schools? Like, why do you look mm -hmm. at your students as criminals? Why are you afraid of mm -hmm. your students? Like, is that rooted in racism? If you're afraid of your students, maybe like teaching isn't the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, maybe you shouldn't be in this field where you're with kids all the time and you're looking at them like creeps or whatever. Yeah, I think that's like, a really great point to transition to champagne well and real pain. Champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. All right, what's our champagne? Do either of you have champagnes today? Um, people doing cool 
stuff with restorative justice and exploring and actually utilizing options that don't involve the police in school discipline. Just like doing the work, you know, just like doing it every day and just not even like thinking about it. Just like, or if they're thinking about it, they're, they don't show it. They're just kind of like, this is just how it should be. And they're just doing it. Those people. Awesome. Meg, how about you? Um, Annie kind of stole mine. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, like champagne, like really the fact that the advance, so it's called the Adva- advancement project. We came to learn. Um, it was something that I stumbled upon when I was doing my research. I, you can just Google that. Um, I have a feeling it'll be in the show notes. You can mm-hmm. download it for free. And it is this amazing um, document that was created by a nonprofit all about um, the historical context of policing in schools and the policing of students and why you should support dismantling it. It was just, I sat there and it was, I was reading it and it just felt so, it just put so many words to the feelings that I was feeling. And it was, I just, it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think my champagne is for um, the school district in Minneapolis that I think took one of the first steps uh, a few weeks, a while ago, actually feels like a while ago um, from this episode, from the day when we are recording, um, where they base they disfunded they discontinued sorry I can't speak they discontinued their SRO program at schools and I I'm seeing like I feel like that was just kind of opening the gates and more schools are coming up taking stands um, Tacoma School District Teachers Association put out a letter and they're kind of having an internal discussion and external discussion about whether or not are asking for Tacoma schools to relook at their relationship with local police and whether SROs are needed or not um, and have gone away from like the original purposes so. I think champagne to those districts and those schools that are being bold with their stances that are coming up um, and and calling this out for what it is and looking at ways of reallocating that money for for things that actually will make a difference for our students. Um, real pain. Real pain for people who are who are who are upset about um, conversations about racial equity because they think that they will have some of their rights taken away because um, like conversations about like it's not it's not a it's not a zero sum game where if like some people get treated better or get like equality that or equity that it's um, that, that, that other people lose. Right. Like I'm not getting like, there's, there's not some bank account somewhere that's like Annie gets all of the um, fair treatment by the police and then black person gets none of it. And then we, if we give, if we make it more fair of a system by eliminating the police or by, you know, removing them from the situation, Annie loses as the white person. That doesn't make any damn sense. And I've just been seeing it a lot, like, lately. And just, like, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not pie. It's not cake. It's not a bottle of wine, guys. Like, just it just move on. It, it floweth it floweth abundantly. There's no, no, uh, there's no limit here. So, like, just stop. Like, when you have a candle and you light somebody else's candle, your candle doesn't go out, guys. Just putting it out there um, real pain Megan <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like you've got a bunch here let's go oh man before before we do that um I may have to go in a couple minutes because I have to go to the doctor with my kiddo okay yeah, yeah. let's go fast yeah okay quick. so, fast. so I, I, I will condense um so honestly I think that I the real pain to like the false equivalencies that are the like permeating our entire world right now in terms of arguments of people that are incapable of having real dialogue and discussion. And so they resort to bringing up like falsehoods and false equivalencies. And, um, and so it just becomes impossible to have any sort of dialogue and, um, any sort of real conversation that would create real change. And, um, it just is, it's becoming really fresh it's becoming, it has been extremely infuriating and frustrating, um, to where like you are so in your fear that you can't even begin to hear or listen. And you have to pull out these like crazy, wild, theoretical arguments of that are so unlikely to happen that it just essentially, um, ends any chance of having any real dialogue or discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'll just second those. Uh, all right, final segment. Do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies. It's like my favorite part of the show is when Annie says that. <laughs> um, all right, I think my homework is. I, I was thinking about so many different things. Uh, I just I think echoing what Megan you just landed with, like 
put, making yourself open-minded, going to listen to some different arguments, reading some stuff. You mentioned at the very end of our discussion around, like, just t- taking a moment to look internally and go, like, why are you so offended when you, you know, why do you feel so threatened that there's no SRO and, and so on? And just being reflective. Like, I think we are at a time and a place that white people in particular need to do this and then do something with it, right? So that action piece after reflection is is widely important. Uh, Annie Homeworks? Yeah, I think um, Hope, were, Hope and I were texting yesterday about this. I think you, everyone should go back and rewatch the documentary 13th it's on Netflix. Um, Ava DuVernay talking about um, the prison system in America and it includes stuff about the history of policing. And I just recommend it's a great, it's a great film. Um, it's well done and it has a lot of great information. So um, I think it, it kind of, it lends some kind of different perspective now than even when it was released because yeah. what's been going on in this year. So highly recommend. Yeah. Pair that with um, listening to Stamp the Remix. Um, I just finished that on the airplane ride from Abu Dhabi to the U.S. And it's right in there. Like just both those things, I think, help people reflect and question. Uh, Megan, homework. Um, so I mentioned it previously of like, but the advancement project, we came to learn it's a really great document, um, but also echoing what you said. I really want to challenge people, especially white people, when you feel defensive, like before you go outward, you really need to go inward and you need to really um, interrogate your own self and ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? What is causing these feelings to come up? Because nine times out of 10, it's based in systemic racism and it's based in um, the privilege that you carry with you every day. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Megan, thank you for coming on the show today and using your time this morning and chatting with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. 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 Hey y'all, don't forget to grab your copy of The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor for our Read Less Basic book club. Follow the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Read Less Basic. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. Oh my gosh, Elliot! Elliot! What's up, Elliot? Hi, buddy. Did you hear him say bye? Say bye, Elliot. Bye. The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.